So this morning, we're going to be hearing from seven men who are going to be preaching on the seven last statements that Jesus gave from the cross. And so in your bulletin, you've got the purple uh, teaching insert. So here's the scriptures here. So you don't need to worry about, we're not going to pass out Bibles this morning. All the scriptures are right here, plus we'll have them be up on the screen. And here's what I want you to do. As, as they share what God's given them to, to bring to us from each of these statements that Jesus makes from the cross, uh, do this. Ask the Lord, Lord, give me one of these scriptures that you are especially speaking to my heart this morning. One of these scriptures you're especially stirring in my heart. And then in our home groups, we'll be sharing what those are, praying for each other, digging them deeper into our hearts and lives. But ask the Lord to give you one specific scripture, one of these seven that you especially needed to hear, the scripture and what these men bring bring to share about it. Um, so the verses will be up on the screen. And let's pray. I just want to pray for them and for us. I'm looking forward to being preached to this morning. So Lord, we we ask you to come now. Thank you for these men and for their prayer and their study and their love for your word and for their diligence and for them serving us by preparing this meal that we get to enjoy now and be fed spiritually from your word. I pray for them, Lord, that you would pour out even more of your grace upon each of them and encourage them, give them wisdom. And then, Lord, I pray for all of us. Open our hearts up to exactly what you have for each of us this morning. Impress it upon us. I pray that you'd save people here this morning, maybe people who've never put their trust in you. I pray that you would encourage those who are discouraged I pray that you would strengthen the faith of those who are feeling weak. I pray that you would guide those who are confused or all the different needs that are here. You'd use your word to speak directly to our circumstances and situations. So come now, move in a mighty way through these men, through your word, for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Brandon. Good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, So my name is Brandon, like Steve said, and my wife Michelle and I are in Steve and Jan's home group. We meet on Wednesdays at 6.30, and so uh, we love being a part of the body in a a tight-knit group. We love our brothers and sisters um, there. We just started a month ago, and if you do not have a home group, come to our home group. So the first verse... Uh, my verse, I should say, um, and our verse together as believers, is Luke twenty three thirty four, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So the place is Golgotha, um, the place of the skull. Uh, that was before the name change um, to Mercy Hill, of course. But this was Jesus' lowest Point of his life, I think no one would argue that this is his absolute lowest point in life, and yet he's saying the first words of his mouth aren't me or I; it's Father, forgive them. These people, he's talking specifically to the people there that have just put him on a rugged Roman cross, splintery cross. Um, they've pierced his his skin, gone through all through his body, and and he's saying, Father, forgive them. And then we read, of course, what's their, their next action is to divide up his garments. That's what they care about. You see, we were being reconciled to God, as Romans 5.10 says, but yet we were still jeering him on. We were still spitting it in his face. And um, we could do everything but make him hate, as John Piper once wrote. We could, we could make him bleed, we could make him weep, but we could not make him hate. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Jesus, with ten devastating words, is saying, he's, he's saying that, that, that there's blatant sin here. Forgive them. He's not saying, oh, forget about it. Hey, you guys, it's okay. Divide my garments, whatever. He's saying, there's some definite sin here, but forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Forgive them for this blatant sin. Forgive them for their ignorance of this sin. And yet he's also of course, by doing that, declaring the towering greatness of his mercy, right? He's saying that I, I want to forgive them. He's interceding in, on our part to the Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
he could have, you know, I like um, Western movies, John Wayne. Um, Colin and I love John Wayne movies. Um, I love John, uh, John Wayne, but he could have easily, if anybody deserved to do this, he could have brought out a, Jesus could have brought out a, a Winchester rifle and just blown everyone away. Um, he would have, could have, would have deserved to do that, but yet he didn't. Um, he 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 could have come down from the cross like like one juror said and and shown himself to be God once and for all or but he he didn't uh, he took the blame he knew that someone had to take the blame he knew that he could that sin could be overlooked but not ignored and he knew that he was the the one sacrificial lamb that could take away the sin of the world and he did and he did. Um, 1 Peter 2, 22 through 23 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So I'm going to end with just a, a recent story that I, I've had in my own life. I had an email from a parent. I'm a teacher uh, of middle school students. And I had a, an email recently that was very... Uh, Blatantly rude and uh, divisive. I was trying to um, ask for solutions with their their student, their child, and they just said, "Do your job. You're a professional." And so I was very uh, I was very discouraged. I was uh, wanting wanting them to help me, and I was feeling like I almost I started putting my my sense of security in them even. And um, so last Sunday morning, the Lord convicted me that. Um, I was I was putting my my hope in them, and and I thought you know if Jesus and this is an email if Jesus can face to face with his his murderers say Father forgive them, then anything I'm going to face is probably going to pale in comparison with that. And um, so my my prayer for us is is that the Lord would change our hearts when we're we're so tempted to say you know what forget you, you've done me this wrong, um, I'm not going to talk to you again, the different ways that we deal with it. May, we, may our prayer be in every circumstance, Father, forgive them, and may Jesus shine through us. Morning. Uh, my name is Josh McGuire. For those of you who haven't met me, uh, our my family uh, uh, and I have been going here for I, I guess a little less than a year, and we're in the um, Greg's home group. Ian Greg, right there. Um, so the, the scripture that I'll be reading um, and talking about is in Luke. Um, it's Luke twenty three forty three and. It's behind me. So it, it says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now Jesus says this when he's uh, being crucified with uh, the two criminals. All three men are experiencing you know, incredible agony as they're suffering on the cross. But I just want to focus um, just on... The response of the two criminals first. I mean, because they they do respond very differently to the to the suffering. The the first criminal is actually hurling abuse at Christ, saying, you know, if if you're the Christ, come come down off the cross, and while you're at it, uh, you know, get us off the cross too. Uh, but the the second criminal um, responds differently. He actually rebukes the the abusive one and says, you know, we we justly deserve what we're getting on the cross, but uh, this man, Jesus, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, um, you know, when when you get your kingdom, remember me. Um, And then that's when Jesus um, says this verse. He he says, uh, you know, truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise. So suffering tends to bring out who we really are. Um, it really gets at, at the core of us and causes us to, to respond with what's in our heart. 
Um, I, I think we've all suffered in different ways. Um, some people have suffered through a divorce. Some people have been looking for, for jobs for a long time and, and struggling with money issues. Some of us have um, you know, struggled with watching our kids suffer either with illness or um, maybe they're unbelievers. It's all, all you know, we can, we can all identify with, with suffering. But, um, you know, do we get angry at God? Um, when that happens, I mean, what's our response to suffering? Do we accuse God of being, uh, you know, powerless? He won't help, or, or you know, even worse, he can't help. You know, what what are what are we doing, or, or do we respond like the the repentant criminal? You know, I've always identified with the repentant criminal when I've thought about this story. I've I've thought about uh, you know how he's on the cross and he turns to Jesus and he, he's he's believing in Jesus. But as I really started thinking more about um, this this story, I realized that I often act like the abusive criminal. There's one um, one instance that is especially vivid for me. When I was in law school, I was uh, very angry at God. Um, I went to law school at Berkeley, and it seemed like the the whole culture was um, against against my faith, and I was I was angry at God um, because. Uh, you know, it, it, I was struggling with these accusations that Christianity was superstitious and that there wasn't any reason or evidence to back it up. And uh, honestly, I was angry at God because he didn't make it easy for me. He, you know, uh, I, he, he didn't provide an easy answer. Um, and so I, you know, I accused him of um, being powerless. And then eventually um, I accused him of not even existing at all. Just, just like the, just like the criminal, if you think about it, um, who was accusing, you know, Jesus first of all of being powerless. You can't really get me off this cross, and then really not of even being God at all. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> eventually Jesus uh, was faithful, even though I was not, and uh, brought me back to Him. But that time of suffering was much longer and harder than it uh, would have been if I would have acted like the the repentant criminal. So, um, I guess, you know, thinking about the the two criminals has really helped me align with what Christ wants from me when I suffer. And I, I just wanted to urge people this morning that when, you know, when you start to experience suffering or catch yourself being angry at God, it's kind of like a trigger <laughs> to, to think about the, the two criminals and just you know, consciously decide how am I going to respond? Am I going to get angry and accuse you know God of um, you know not being there or you know not being there for me? Or am I going to act like the the repentant criminal? Um, and, and I think just to just to expand on that last part just a little, what does it mean to act like the repentant criminal? I think you look at what he did, and one was he acknowledged that he was justly um, suffering. You know, I, I think we're you know as as sinners, you know, we we do deserve punishment. But what did the the criminal do? He didn't try to like pull himself off the cross <laughs> and uh, you know fix himself. Instead, he turned to Christ. And he said, "Remember me." You know that 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 was showing the you know the faith that was in his heart. You know this man beside him was being crucified. Also, you know there was, you know there was no hope for this guy as far as the world could see. You know, but yet the the repentant criminal looked at him and said, "You're a king. Remember me when you are in your kingdom." So. You know, I think that's you know when we're when we're suffering, you know, that's the correct response to to look at ourselves, understand we justly deserve to suffer, but then look to Christ and know that He's paid for our sins and trust in Him to to fulfill His promise, just like He did to the the repentant criminal. Um, he, he promised, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. You, we we've got to believe Him that uh, uh, you know and trust in Him that He's doing what's good for us, and eventually we will be with Him. In paradise. Thank you.
Good morning. I'm David Lynn, and my wife, uh, Lenora, and I and our two kids go to the uh, Parks Home Group. And the passage I'll be sharing from is John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, the background of this passage is that uh, Jesus has been crucified. For all of these, you can imagine Jesus hanging on the cross. You know, he's, he's uh, hanging there and, and speaking these uh, seven, seven words. And uh, as Brandon shared, uh, the soldiers who had crucified him had divided up his uh, clothes and drawn lots for his tunic, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. And around the cross, there were a few women, including uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, and uh, also John, who refers to himself as uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was there. And as we see in the passage, Jesus saw John and uh, his mother Mary, and he bound them together as a mother and son. And uh, it seems to me that Jesus, as he was living his final moments of his earthly life, um, really wanted to take care of his mother, make sure that she was uh, going to be okay. Uh, It's presumed that Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, had uh, died before this time. Now, as a parent, I think it's great, it's wonderful that Jesus wanted to um, take care of his mother. And I also think it's great that John, you know, he immediately... Uh, responded to Jesus' call. It says that from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. But it's also a little curious, because um, Jesus had four, at least four brothers and two sisters. In Matthew 13, um, it, it lists their names as James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So it, it comes to mind, well, wouldn't uh, one of Jesus' brothers or sisters be the one to take care of of Mary? Why did Jesus choose John? Was it just that he happened to be there at the the cross and his brothers and sisters weren't there? Uh, You know, I I don't think that's the case. I think it's it's more than that. Now, in Matthew 12, um, uh, Jesus was speaking to a large crowd, and uh, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And so I told him, and he, he said to the, this person, who is my mother and my brothers? And he pointed to the disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. So it really shows that Jesus' notion of family goes beyond blood relationships. Each of us who are um, following the Father's will and are following Jesus, uh, we're part of Jesus' family, and so we're, we're family to each other as well. Now, this is true in times of crisis. I, um, I remember when I was in junior high, uh, my family was traveling uh, from Northern California on I-5 down south, and we had a, a blowout in our station wagon, and we flipped over several times, and uh, my mom was in a coma for about a month. Uh, my dad had a fractured back, so uh, it was just my brother, he was entering high school of me, and my, my dad with a fractured back at home. And uh, my church family really took care, care of us. I mean, they visited us, they brought meals, uh, they prayed with us. Um, but that we're a family is also true in non-crisis times. Uh, my parents started sending my brother and me to uh, church when I was in sixth grade, and um, since that time, I've really had spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters who've uh, cared for me. They've taught and guided me, counseled me, prayed with me. And um, so whether it's crisis or non-crisis time, you know, we are a family. Um, for me, the word that strikes me out of this passage is the word behold. You know, Jesus could have said, John, you know, please watch over my mother. But you know, he said, behold, your son, behold, your mother. And to me, that it just means to open your eyes and see. And uh, I, to me, I feel Jesus is saying, open your eyes and see. The, you know, these fellow believers around you are your true family. Uh, take care of them for me, just as John was to take care of, of Mary. And so uh, my hope for me and for all of us is that... Uh, 
our eyes would be opened, that we would see the true spiritual family bonds that we share, and that we would respond in love and care. God bless you. Just a little. Sorry, Dono. Good morning. My name is uh, Jim Swanson. For those of you who might not know me, uh, my wife and I have the privilege of serving with the worship team here at Mercy Hill, as uh, well as being members of the Coyote Creek Home Group, which is interesting because we actually meet in the creek. So uh, you have to be able to swim to be part of our group. The scripture I'm going to be sharing with you this morning is found in Matthew 27:46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus shouted in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is traditionally referred to as the cry of abandonment. But I hope to show you this morning that it was actually anything but that. You know, despite the appearance of desperation, uh, what Jesus said is a testament to the sovereignty of God. Jesus wanted the world to know that God is always in control. Okay, we've got to set the stage. Well, my brothers before me have done that adequately. Jesus is on the cross. Scripture says that about the ninth hour. He'd been up there about six hours. The, the point is he'd been enduring excruciating pain for about six hours at this time. A long time. Yet, the scripture says, he is able to shout in a loud voice. And even though he shouts, his words are still misunderstood by some of the bystanders. Uh, in the following passage, Matthew twenty-seven forty-seven, reads, And some of the bystanders, hearing it, what Jesus said, hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. So what was perceived as a garbled request by some of the people there around the cross it was heard, it was picked up by the gospel source, absolutely crystal clear. I mean, he even goes to the point in, in giving us the translation. I mean, there was no ambiguity whatsoever. It's clear as a bell. See, God wants us to know exactly what Jesus said. See, in those days, they had a common practice of a speaker would get in front of a group of people and he would recite the first line to a psalm or a worship song or a scripture. And it was expected that the audience would just start reciting along with him from memory. We do that today to a certain extent. You think of, uh, I pledge allegiance, or uh, oh, the alphabet song, or space, the final frontier, right? <laughs> but that's the idea. Our minds begin to move. We start to fill in the blanks. So the words that Jesus spoke at that point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words, the opening line to uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the psalms attributed to David, and it happens to be one of the prophetic messianic psalms. See, it's very curious because even though in the psalm David is speaking in the first person, it becomes very clear that he's speaking in the voice of another character. He describes, in his writing, he describes uh, events and injuries that at least to our knowledge, it never happened to David. But what he does provide us with is this list of things that we absolutely know happened to Jesus. For example, he describes being beaten and maimed and scorned. He describes uh, having his clothes taken from him and having men gamble and divide them up amongst themselves. And most tellingly, he describes having his hands and his feet pierced. And keep in mind, this is like 900 years before the practice of crucifixion was brought to that country, courtesy of the Romans. So this psalm starts out very, very gloomy. But the tone doesn't stay like that for long. About a third of the way in, the speaker starts to praise God. And he exhorts the readers to praise God. Before you know it, he is in full-blown worship. And he's telling the world that God is the king God is sovereign, God is in control, and that God is faithful to deliver. Now, a couple of years ago, the family and I were on a family vacation, and we ended up at the, well, we didn't end up there, we planned to go there, the, the great meteor crater in Arizona. This thing is like 4,000 feet wide, 650 feet deep. This is this great big hole, I don't know why you go see that, but anyway, here we are, and, and they have uh, 
got to stay on the mic. They have this railing with these little telescopes. Now, the little telescopes are trained on objects and little signs at the bottom of the crater. You walk up and you look through the telescope and bam, man, you're seeing something really cool. But if you don't go up to this telescope and look through it, you miss the whole thing. So I believe that when Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, he was in effect telling us where to look. That he wanted then, and he still wants us to know, that God is always in control. You know, no matter how desperate or dire the circumstances, or how far away from God we feel, that God is there. You know, for all of us, each and every one of us, the, the knowledge and the belief that God is in control, it, well, it's foundational to our ability to trust him. We trust the thing that we know is in control, right? So in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said that God works in all things for the good. And that is only possible because God's always in control. Thank you. I'm Chris Keener. Um, that's my wife, Ming Lan, over there. Um, my focus is on I thirst. And this is uh, the verse in its context, John 19, verses 28 to 30. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what we first notice is, I thirst is framed by two statements that say, Jesus' mission on earth is complete. It's done. It's finished. And what that means for us, it means for me that I don't need to worry about my relationship with God because Jesus finished the work on the cross that's where I put my hope. That's where I put my trust. Not in anything I did. So I have security in that relationship. That means I can pour my time and my energy and my everything. I can pour my life into Jesus Christ. And in a sort of an analogous way, I have my relationship with my wife, Minglan. And that's a committed relationship. We're in it for life. And because of that, I can pour my life and my energy and my time into my wife, into Minglan. What she wants, that's what I pay attention to because I love her. And that's the way it is with Jesus because he's finished the work. Our relationship's secure. Well, it says that he, this statement is to fulfill the scripture. Most likely this is reference to Psalm 69 Verse 21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And this psalm is quoted in two other places in the Gospel of John. It's also quoted elsewhere in the Scripture. Clearly, it points towards Jesus' death on the cross. But when it says, He said this to fulfill Scripture, it's not only pointing to this psalm, but really what Jesus did in going to the cross and dying for us fulfills the scripture, fulfills all of what the Old Testament was pointing to. And Jesus ultimately is, he, what, what Steve preached on last week, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so all that the Old Testament is about is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the last time Jesus was thirsty in the Gospel of John was in chapter 4. And there he asked the woman at the well for water. And then he offered her living water welling up to eternal life. Now he's thirsty again, and this time he offers the living water. He delivers that promise and gives living water to everybody who believes in him. Now, what it means for us... The last time we had communion, I mentioned that we remember his death on the cross. But it's not just remembering a fact of what Jesus did. 
is really where we remember that Jesus laid down his life for us, and it's an act of worship that we do. So what it means, Jesus' death on the cross really is the focal point of all of our lives. It's the foundation for our acts of love and service towards one another. Jesus said, as I laid down my life for you, you should lay down your lives for one another. And he calls us to share in his suffering. So as we take the message of the gospel out into the world, Jesus says, they'll hate you as they hated me. And so we share in the suffering of the cross When we tell people the good news, they don't always take it as good news, and sometimes they reject us, and they make fun of us, and they laugh at us, and they say, well, what is it you believe? And just like what Josh mentioned about what happened to him at Berkeley. But Jesus tells us we need to bear that cross. And last, by his death, he heals us from our sin, and oftentimes from the emotional damage that we do to ourselves when we sin against the Lord. I know that when I was growing up, I was an anxious teenager. (laughs) And the Lord has really set me free from that. But God will set us free from our sins, and he gives us joy in knowing him. So at the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. It signifies that his work is completed, and so we have an abundant life in Christ. Okay. <laughs> Lower this thing down. All right, so those of you that don't know me, my name is Ian. My wife, Marie, and I are home group leaders here at Mercy Hill. We've been coming for about five years now. Uh, so just like Chris, I'm uh, actually the second half of John 19.30 there. So let's go ahead and start with that. Um, so it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So... You know, the first question I'd have to ask, I mean, I always enjoy the, reading the Bible because it, there's always kind of these clues and these kind of stories. You, know, you don't have to you know, figure out for yourself what's going on. You just kind of have to piece the story together. There's connections. There's things that tie together. So kind of looking at this, we say, well, what's Jesus talking about? I mean, is he just trying to be poetic about dying? You know, it is finished. You know, he's given some poetic speech. Uh, is there something deeper to this? What is Jesus really trying to say? What is finished? And if you look at earlier in this verse, uh, it talks about when Jesus had received the sour wine. And going back to actually two verses to what Chris was talking about, we know that there's a connection between the sour wine and, what does it say there? It says, to fulfill the scripture. There is a direct connection between what Jesus was doing there and fulfilling the scripture. Now this is from Psalm 6921, um, but we also see other points in the Gospels where this is mentioned. Four times in John it's mentioned the connection between what Jesus does and the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, Matthew does the same thing eight times. And if we put all this together, we see that it's not just one thing that Jesus was doing. He was time after time after time showing us that he is the Messiah. He is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about what that anointed king would be doing. So it's not just uh, a couple here and there. There's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled of what this Old uh, Testament Messiah would do. And so what do we get out of this? Jesus is saying it is finished, meaning of all these over 300 prophecies about the Old Testament Messiah, it's Jesus. He is the anointed one. He is the anointed king. So what does that mean for us? Uh, that means that he's the Messiah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, as we think about that, there's lots of different things that are uh, prophesied about this Messiah. Um, you know, Chris talked about uh, him paying the price for our sins. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful prophecy about that Old Testament coming king would die for us, his servants. It's kind of a wild picture if you think about it. Why would a king die for his servants? But that was prophesied, that the king would be the lamb that would be slaughtered for our sins. And in totality, you sum all this up, what do we do with that? The only right response for us as servants is to surrender to this king. He is the king. And so, just a kind of quick story about that from my own life. Um, Last Friday, a week ago, 
I was uh, had a busy week, and I was struggling a bit with just kind of everything I had to do and just wanting to get it done. But at the same hand, I knew that something wasn't right with my spirit. I was kind of struggling. And my typical mode of operation is just to wrestle through that, just kind of grind through the day and just kind of stuff down kind of whatever's going on within me. But instead, I canceled my plans. I uh, had a bunch of appointments that I um, postponed, and I went on a prayer hike. And uh, I find this is one of the most best ways for me to meet with the Lord. So I'm, I'm talking to him. I'm praying out loud and doing this off in a King Quicksilver's good because there's no one around. Um, and I was noticing that there was a lot of demands and expectations I had of God. I was, you know, saying, you know, why am I not here with my finances? Why don't I have kids? Why don't I have this with my career? And then the Holy Spirit just hit me. He is the anointed king. Jesus is the anointed king. How dare I be this expectant of what he's supposed to do with my life? He's numbered my days. He knows the number of days that are in my life. And he's ordered them. He has a specific plan for those days of my life. And if I am fighting against him, to be very specific about the way that he's going to use the days that he's ordered and numbered for me, I'm in active rebellion against him. And so I have a choice. I have a choice to say, I believe your plans, or I believe my plans. And... Uh, and so it was amazing. I, I surrendered to him. And, you know, some of those things are actually, to be honest, quite difficult. Some of those things felt a bit reckless to give to him. Um, you know, if we think about it, you know, we've got expectations, you know, for myself of finances or of um, health, and giving those over to him feels a bit uh, uncontrolled. We want to hold on to that uh, dreams for what the future are going to look like. But if we really believe that Jesus is the anointed King. Our only right response is to surrender to him, surrender everything to him, even those things that feel reckless. And so um, if I was to summarize this, you know, John 19.30 shows us that Jesus is the anointed king. He is the prophesied coming Messiah. And uh, that's not just for the payment of our sins, but it's also that uh, he in totality is everything that our lives are made for. You know, the, the Jews wait in expectation for this coming Messiah. We don't have to wait. It's Jesus. And uh, I'd encourage you, what ways are you rebelling against Jesus? What do you need to surrender to him? Because um, I, I can tell you that there's things that come up in my day that I actively rebel against him and want to hold on to, dreams I want to hold on to, expectations of my life. And so I'd encourage you, what should you surrender to Jesus? There's particulars the Holy Spirit gives you, and if you don't surrender to those to him, you're an act of rebellion against him. And so even though it may feel irrational and not sensible, the most sensible thing you can do is surrender to the anointed king. Good morning. My name is Rick Park, and my wife and I, Yvonne, we, we belong to the Parks Home Group. <laughs> And I'm just uh, thankful this morning to be a part of the preaching power team this morning. <laughs> I hope we get to do this again sometime. Uh, yeah. uh, my verse today uh, is Luke chapter 23, verse 46. It says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. As all, we all know, uh, maybe most of us, um, some may not, but Jesus Christ came uh, for this purpose, for what he achieved on the cross. He came and lived, lived a sinless life. He suffered uh, and he died on the cross. And the resurrection comes, but that's next week. And he died taking on the sins of all of us. And after having completed this very purpose for which he came in flesh, he proclaimed, it is finished, as we have just heard, and spoke his final words. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And this was the end of Jesus' life's journey. 
to anyone that placed their trust in Jesus Christ, these final words of Jesus are precious words. Because they sum up the core benefit of the good news of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is truly our Savior and Lord, His life is our life, and His death, our death. All the benefits of of His crucifixion are ours if we are trusting in Jesus. The first thing that Jesus says in His final words is, Father. In Romans 8.15, we are told that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What that means is because of Jesus and what he has achieved on the cross, and when we trust that, we have become sons and daughters of the Almighty. And we have the privilege And we also, along with Jesus Christ, can call out to God as our Father. And that is an awesome privilege, isn't it? Then Jesus said, Into your hands I command my spirit. From the hands of men, Jesus was going into the hands of God. Do any of you fear death? I think that's a primal fear that grips all of us. And I think that's the very source of all of our fears. But if we continue to fear death as believers, we are sinning. Because fearing death really comes from unbelief. Why? Well, because of what Jesus is saying here in his final The second part of what he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. If we truly trust Jesus, there is no reason to fear death. There is no reason to wonder what will happen to our souls when we die. All of us can have the certainty, and we must, that upon death, our soul will be with God. Jesus will be receiving our spirit even as Stephen saw while he was being stoned he saw the heavens open Jesus standing there and he said Jesus receive my spirit we know the old children's bedtime prayer right now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I don't know, for unbelievers, I think for non-believers, they may uh, say that prayer with their children as well. For unbelievers, it might be a wishful thinking. But for believers, it's not just a wishful prayer that we're throwing up. But it is rooted in the certainty of what God has promised through Jesus Christ, that our soul will be with him. Some of you here may be in good hands with Allstate, but if you believe in Jesus, you're in God's hands for eternal security not just for accidents. The Apostle Paul says, for I am sure. And let me me emphasize that first part, for I am sure, he says, that neither life nor death, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. My question this morning for all of us is, do we have that assurance? Do we have that assurance in Jesus Christ? That nothing will separate us. Not in life, and certainly not in death. If you don't have this assurance this morning, you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him with your life. Give your heart to Him, and you can have this assurance. In life and in death, those who trust in Jesus Christ are safe and secure in God's loving hands. And at the very end of our life's journey, and it may be today, tomorrow, next year, decades from now, our life and death, we are in the hands of our loving Father. And when that day comes, we can say, with full confidence, just as Jesus did, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Amen. Right on. Thanks, Rick. Let's go ahead and stand up. I want to pray over us. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for what these men have brought to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the call to forgive others. Thank you for the call to trust you, Lord Jesus, during suffering. Thank you for the teaching that we should pay heed and really care for our true spiritual family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And for the good word that you are always in control. Thank you that because of the cross, through trusting you, Lord Jesus, our relationship with you is secure. And you heal us from not just sin's guilt, but also sin's wounds and pain. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the king of the universe. And that it's right for us to surrender every part of our lives to you. And thank you for what Rick just shared, that we have no need to fear death because of your death, Lord Jesus, paying for our sins because of your promise of eternal life, we can trust you completely. So Lord, take these now and work them deeply into our hearts. Whichever one you are speaking specifically to to us individually, that we would, would take heed to that and we would ponder that and rest in that and learn from that and live that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking these seven words 2,000 years ago on the cross to teach us today who you are, what life's about, and how you call us to live. Thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brothers. Really, really helpful. Let's thank them. Amen. The Almond Valley Home Group is going to be up here in front, and we want to be just offer to be able to pray for you if you have any needs whatsoever that you'd like uh, somebody to pray for you privately and confidentially. We will keep it all private, so come on up if it's work issues. If maybe this morning's the morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, we would love to pray for you about that. If it's health issues, employment issues, come on up. We'll be here ready to pray for you.